News. 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 New York City. F A Q. No, no, no. We should do the whole thing. We should do the whole thing. Come on. It doesn't take long. long. (laughs) (laughs) Take five. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Professor Christina Greer with my co-host Harry Siegel at our studio at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work, where we're talking this week with its director, Dr. Michael Lindsay, about his work on a new task force studying why the suicide rate among preteen black boys has gone up so dramatically. After that, Alex Brooklyn fills us in on her visit to Albany Tuesday for Lobby Day, where she followed along a few people calling for an investigation of the NYPD's vice squad. After that, we'll talk with Patricia Williams, mother of the new public advocate, Jumani Williams. We'll talk to her about her experience raising a boy in Brooklyn. As you all may know, Patricia Williams is one of the two leading candidates to be New York City's next first mom. Let's start with Dr. Lindsay. Welcome. We're here with Dr. Michael Lindsay, the head of the McSilver Institute at NYU, home of the FAQ NYC podcast. I'm Christina Greer, the 2018 McSilver Fellow, here with my co-host, Harry Harry Siegel, who is the 2019 McSilver Fellow. And right before we started, Harry was about to ask a brilliant question. So, Harry, I will throw it over to you. Well, we're going to start in the middle here, I think. <laughs> cool. It's like Tarantino. I promise we'll get to the beginning right after that. Yeah. Where has the black church been traditionally on a suicide? I think historically the black church has turned a blind eye to it. It's been cast as a sin to take your own life. It's been stigmatized in the way that traditional mental illness has been stigmatized in the church as demonic and obviously one struggling with demon possession. And so if you are experiencing a mental illness, or as we traditionally call it, a nervous breakdown, which is a euphemism, Mm -hmm. because no such thing exists as a nervous breakdown. It's not even a medical term. You're just being hysterical now. No, I'm telling you the truth. But hysteria. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. sorry, we sh- we should have said we're we're a little tongue in cheek and <laughs> facetious here. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like hysteria though, Harry, is is just for women in many ways, right? Historically, Chris, you mean I'm, I'm being a little histrionic right now and hysterical. I need to settle down. But I mean, in all seriousness, the black church is oftentimes seen mental illness as either unfounded, a figment of your own imagination or a way to act out, or a sin. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yeah, definitely. That's the kind of last part of it is that it's it's deemed to be a sin. Mm-hmm. And again, accorded with being in possession of a demon. And the way that we treated it was to pray it out of you, to cast it out of mm-hmm. you. In some churches, to beat it out of you. Uh, yeah, to beat it out of you, the whole nine. But we've come a, a long way, and I think we have some great examples of that right here in New York City. Shout out to Reverend Michael Waldron uh, at First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, who decided that he was going to be part of changing the narrative. Mm-hmm as a black church. And not only is he vocal about the importance of getting mental health treatment and mental illness in general, he tries not to demonize it, if you will. And stigmatize. Yeah, yeah. So he, and then the other part of the major work that he's done is that he has a freestanding mental health clinic Mm -hmm. 
that is supported by the church so that folks can come and get mental health services with no cost being a prohibitor. Right. Well, that's one, something I want to ask you about, not just Mike Walwin and the church, but some of your research as well, because the, one of the most impressive things I think about First Corinthians Baptist Church and the work that Reverend Walwin is doing is that it's a mixed class church, which is somewhat of an anomaly in some ways. Yeah. There are a lot of black churches that are um, either working class, lower class, or fur coats and Mercedes Benzes, if you will. And so his church uh, not only has a holistic approach to mental health um, awareness and mm-hmm. assistance, but it seems as though he's being very clear that this is not a poor people problem or just uh, a wealthy person's problem or a professional class problem. Yeah, and you know, that's been some of the narrative about mental health treatment and the black community. I've had folks and studies that uh, I've done say to me that mental health treatment is something that white folks have or are involved in. That's not a black thing, mm-hmm. right? Going to see a therapist. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so uh, what folks have done is, you know, they've taken their problems to the church and in so doing have been sort of rebuffed around the struggle of it sort of being a mental illness. And, you know, it's been characterized as being demonic possession, let's pray it out of you, or you're sinning or engaged in a lifestyle that somehow or another prompted this, uh, you know, mental illness episode. So, again, I mean, that's been the tradition, and I think we have made great strides and have some, you know, really positive examples of how the church can be um, an agent of change. So I know that there are two recent studies to maybe move toward the start here, one in 2015, one a couple of years earlier, showing that the uh, suicide rate among kids, like five-year-olds to 12-year-olds, which has generally been pretty stable, has remained stable. However, the suicide rate for black kids, and particularly boys, because most very young suicides, I believe, are boys, has doubled since the uh, 90s and is now much higher than that for other groups and that it's declined with, with whites and others. Is that right? And are we coming to any terms with why that's happening, if so? Yeah. Shout out to epidemiologist uh, Jeff Bridge, who's at Nationwide Children's Hospital in, in Columbus. Columbus. Columbus, Ohio, Ohio mm-hmm. State, uh, for doing that research, uh, along with a colleague that I work closely with, uh, Ariel Sheftall, is a co-author in that study. Yes. So what they found was that over about a 20-year period, the rate of suicide for the 5 to 12-year-old age group saw a dramatic shift. And when I say dramatic, it's not just, Harry, that it was steady. What has been happening over the last at least 10 to 15 years is that the rates have gone in different directions, Right. So for black kids, the rates have gone up and for other kids, namely white kids, the next largest you know, sort of group of kids who engage in the behavior, those rates have gone down. So imagine a triangle, if you will, that's pointed to the left at one end or one axis, the rates are going up and it's going down. So that's dramatic and it's now the case that black kids are killing themselves 
at two times the rate of white kids. And it's principally a male phenomenon. And it looks almost like a V on its side. There you go. Just a V on its side. Incredible divergence. Yeah. Quite yeah. an incredible divergence. And what's also bizarre and just, you know, really sad is that the method by which this is happening, really interesting when you put it into a historical context, the primary method by which they're doing this is hanging themselves. Mm-hmm. So black whereas, boys. Whereas the data for whites is primarily guns, am I correct? Of yes, access to group? guns, yes, yes. Guns, poison, that sort of thing. But yeah, for, for black uh, kids, it's hanging. And that's increased, right, as the rates have gone up, the the percentage of hangings for whatever reason. Yes. And is it, for you and your colleagues who study it, is it a phenomenon of self-lynching or That's a why, great question. I don't know. When you put versus... it into a historical context of lynching in America, and particularly for it, this historical legacy for black males, it's, it's really interesting because – this obviously is somewhat of a self-imposed mm-hmm. behavior, mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we're seeing among black boys, right? Um, but, Harry, you asked about what could be some of the underlying reasons. Is it some form of self-hatred? And, you know, the Notorious B.I.G. said some years ago, um, the title of his first album was Ready to Die. Right. Right. And he has a song called Suicidal Thoughts. Yeah, yeah, Suicidal Thoughts, right. Which I think is one of his most powerful songs. Totally. I mean, he literally starts off the song that says, I mean, pardon the profanity, but he says, when I die, fuck it, I want to go to hell. I'm a piece of shit, and it's not hard to fucking tell. To start off a song with a a declaration like that, um, Mm. and he's also, keep, keep in mind, late teens, early 20s when he's writing this. Right. Um, And you're talking about an age group that's even younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think about those lyrics. um, They're palpable, right? Like in the sense of what is happening with black boys. Uh, It seems like they're indicating their sort of readiness to to die, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But I think there are other factors that we can point to. And certainly I think that... It has policy implications, right? So because it's a, a, a principally a, a male phenomena, one of the things you have to point to immediately is how we socialize boys. And I wonder from a racial lens, do we socialize black boys in a different sort of way around you have to be tough, you have to man up. Don't cry. You know, I've talked to parents who have said to their sons, their black sons, you know, you cannot afford to be weak in this world because you already have, you know, sort of one position down, if you will, because of your race. And so you always have to assert yourself, be strong, tough, never show your weakness. And from a clinical, psychological perspective, what that does is it blunts the emotional expression, the range of emotional expression that um, that black boys might be able to have. And so if you're blunted in the range of your expression of emotions, then you're reticent to cry or, or show any kind of vulnerability or weakness. Mm-hmm. And so then if you do have those experiences with no outlet, it's quite sensible in some ways that you turn that pain inward, inward, Mm -hmm. right? And contemplate that 
perhaps your life is not worth uh, living or you're hopeless about your future and that sort of thing. So I think that that's a, a real core issue from a emotional kind of psychological perspective. But I also think that schools play a role, right? What we know is that black and brown kids are suspended sometimes two, maybe three, four times the rate of other kids. And one of the things that we do in our school-based research around depression and suicide ideation, we say to our school colleagues, you're going to encounter a kid that is volatile, ready to fight, and just explosive. And so what we say is take a few steps back and try to understand what's underneath that behavior, right? And underneath the, that pain, really. Yeah, it is if pain. If you can see it's what pain. it is. Yeah. It's pain, right? It's, it's anger. It's pain. I remember interviewing a kid who was incredibly depressed in one of my studies, and I asked him, when, you, when you're sad and down, what do you do? And he said, I want to go and knock somebody's head off. I said, wow, I didn't exp- uh, ex- uh, you know, anticipate him saying that. And I, and I say, why? Why do you want to do that? And he said, because I want someone to feel the same pain and, and torment that I feel. Mm-hmm. And so it just makes me want to just go and knock somebody's head off, right? And that that was, you know, 15 years ago or so, but it resonated with me throughout my career because I think that that's what we're seeing with respect to what is being demonstrated in schools. And so then if you as a member of that school community, you see that behavior and your automatic impulse is to suspend that kid or get that kid out of the school, to me that's, you know, somewhat a disservice to the reality of what's going on. You include like trauma and other kinds of, you know, community and family stressors that kids present with. It's 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 uh, an indication to me that, you know, we need to kind of take a step back and, and really understand the behaviors, do away with suspensions and expulsions, right? I know that's been, you know, somewhat uh, controversial, but in my, you know, sort of talks and travel around the country on, you know, talking about this issue, that's one of the things I've been, you know, really supporting is that we think about school suspensions and expulsions differently. Because what that does is it puts kids on this pathway, this trajectory toward hurting themselves um, because they have nowhere to turn to or, you know, this sort of school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they're expelled from school and nowhere to turn their attention to, they obviously are prone to get involved in other kinds of deviant behavior. So I think that, you know, the school context is really important. And from a policy perspective, I think we can rethink school discipline and and the kinds of support that we give uh, kids. And so that brings me to my last point, this sort of long-winded <laughs> answer here. But I think the other piece is that we don't get to treatment. It's two sides of the same coin, right? Which is that there's stigma related to the mental illness and this sort of you know perspective that I don't have mental illness of any sort. I don't have time to have a mental illness. That is what crazy folks go through. That's not me. Um, to the other side of the coin, which is that rich people go to therapists. I don't have 
the money or the wherewithal to go? Or if I do go to a therapist, is that person really going to tell me about mm-hmm. my life mm-hmm. and give me the kind of support that I need to get through this struggle? Um, so the treatment piece is real key um, to it. And and oftentimes we don't get our, our children and youth, you know, really connected to services in the way that would be beneficial to them. One real in the weeds question, and then I want to ask you about a couple of these specific children. As you're seeing this increase, is this an increase in what's happening or an increase in reporting? Do you have any sense of that right now? Um, I know just around a lot of these issues, including school suspensions, including stop and frisk, rape reports, all over as we're becoming more sensitive to data, it's sometimes hard to measure when we're seeing something new versus when we're seeing a change in what's reported. Harry, are you a researcher? No. God, man, you. <laughs> Brother, you on it. Wow, it's a great, great question. I think it's um, a change in what's happening in the sense that, yes, there has been the stop and frisk here in New York City and otherwise that has bombarded communities and has raised tensions. Folks have called it over-policing, et cetera. Um, I think that's part of it. So there's like contextual realities that have shaped the rise and the occurrence of these kinds of issues. I think the economic issue definitely plays a role. So parents are struggling to make ends meet. Almost back to the church, right? Like, I'm wondering if there wasn't an inclination not to report this. It's such a difficult and unique tragedy, and maybe some of that has shifted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that definitely is part of the the, the narrative here, right? Um, But yeah, so those kinds of experiences that kids are having around their community and family environment has made them feel a sense of hopelessness. And if you think about it from a poverty perspective, if they see their you know caregivers struggling to try to make ends meet, and perhaps maybe, and I'm not blaming caregivers, but you know if they even hear messages like, "Wow, you cost a lot of money," or "I don't have the resources to do this or that," you know, does it sort of indicate for these kids, "Well, well, maybe I should take myself out of the situation so as to not." stress my family out about what I need to do to, you know, sort of be successful. So I think some of those issues do play a role, for sure. Are you finding any class or regional patterns? Yeah, what's interesting is that in the data from the JAMA study, Jeff Bridge study, I think what they found was that the southeast region of the country had the higher rates. And if you think about the southeast region uh, being sort of like that Bible belt, mm-hmm. maybe there's something about not being able to – this is all speculative, by the way, right? But there's maybe something about not being able to go to the church and get resolution of your issues and you know, or this sort of constant kind of like you know, pray about it, you know, God will heal you or deliver you without that kind of healthy, normalized way as we think about it in the mental health treatment world of going to a therapist and resolving those issues, maybe that plays a role. And are, is there a class component? I mean, The class component gave, is interesting, you yeah. You sent us some information about uh, some of the children 
um, who have hung, primarily hung themselves, incredibly young kids, um, and we want to have you talk to us a little bit more about their stories. But I didn't know if there were any class distinctions. Are we seeing that these are middle class families, upper middle class, working class to poor? Um, or is it a phenomenon that you're seeing? I'm working on a hypothesis about that. Um, well, the data is not been clear about that mm-hmm. as, as, as much as we'd like. I think that from what I'm seeing, and, and, and I'll get into a couple of the stories, these families are struggling with issues of poverty mm-hmm. um, and inequality. And I, my hypothesis is that there's a more pronounced number of kids who are going through this experience who are struggling with poverty. Mm-hmm. So, so low-income families are definitely right. ones to you know, sort of monitor. And and tell us about some of some of the boys um, in this. this yeah, the one, the one, uh, you know, story that really jumped out at me because I'm from Washington D.C. was uh, Ryland Hagen, was 11 year old kid on November the 20th, 2017, and I know this story intimately because. I've interviewed his mom for a research study that I'm working on documenting what's happening to these families who have had this experience, trying to map what happened beforehand to what is happening after the fact, right? And so I've talked to Rylan's mom. His mom went out on November the 20th, 2017 to run errands and had said to Rylan, uh, you know, I'll be back. I may call you if I stop past the grocery store to get your help when I get back home to bring the groceries upstairs to the apartment and and get them put away. And so Rylan said, sure. And so she left the house with Rylan playing his video game. By the way, he was out of school that day because it was like a school resource day, and so they didn't have to go to school. And so he's at home and playing video games, and uh, mom comes back. And uh, she called him on his cell phone. He didn't answer. And so she said, well, I I said to that boy that I was going to, you know, need some help. And where is he? So she manages to get the groceries upstairs and rings the door, bell for him. Still, he doesn't answer. So then she puts the bags down, goes into the apartment, you know, unlocks the door, goes into the apartment, calling his name out. And... She goes to his room and discovers Rylan hanging from his bed. Ironically, he had tied his school uniform belt into a noose and and hung himself. And so, you know, his was deep. Rylan's mom said all he had to do to save his life was to stand up. All he had to do was stand up. And he wouldn't have uh, completed his suicide. And that's what, you know, this that, that biggie, you know, thing, mm-hmm. ready to die, you know, really resonates with me regarding these stories. I mean, clearly, Rylan was, for some reason, ready to die. His mom and I talked about why, what led to that, and she saw no, you know, visible, concrete signs of Rylan being Depression in distress. No, she said, no, 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 no distressed um or, you know, depression or anything like that. She, and she said to me, you know, Michael, share my story and however form you want to do that, but please help me to understand why did I come home 
to find my son hanging. It's 11 years old? 11 years old. Have you, I know it's very hard to personalize, but what have you been able to help her understand or how are you looking to help her understand? And maybe that takes us to this task force and some of the research you're doing as well. Yeah. Um, I've tried to give her some sense of why I thought that it happened, but it still doesn't really help to assure her that she has a true understanding of what happened, right? I've recently talked to, and I'm going to interview her more extensively, but I've recently talked to Seven Bridges' mom. Um, I'm going to meet her in a few weeks to interview her in a more exhaustive way, but Seven Bridges is uh, 10 years old, and in January of 2019, this year, uh, Seven Bridges from Louisville, Kentucky, hung himself. His mom said uh, to me that, and ironically, she's a mental health advocate in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. So she said that she was always on her game in terms of, you know, really checking in with her son, trying to understand his challenges. She said that there were no precursor mental health issues um, like depression or anything he was struggling with. She felt that they had uh, an open line of communication. And and she said she came home. Same thing, right? She's out running errands. She came home to find Seven hanging from his bed. And Seven had some, some physical issues, right? The, yeah, the- and I talked to her about that, right? So he had some, some physical issues. And she said that she didn't think that that played a huge role. I asked her about bullying, and she said, no, I mean, she didn't think that that played a role. Um, she felt like there's something else. Um, that was happening that she did not have, um, she doesn't have a full grasp of. So a lot of these families, um, the ones that I've talked to so far, are really grasping at why. And so hopefully, you know, through this work that we're doing, um, I'll talk about the task force, you know, we're trying to come up with answers. Um, So the task force, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, I want to say she's out of the 12th congressional district in New Jersey, is one of those uh, individuals that I think is uh, somewhat of a messiah, right? Because I think that to call attention out to these issues and to give voice and agency to the experiences that these young folks and their families are going through. You need someone from the perch that she sits to really be able to say, you know what, enough is enough. We've got to do something. We had a uh, hearing sponsored by Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman in December, and it was on mental health treatment disparities in the black community. And she brought in some experts and wanted to just get a sense of what are the core issues so that then she might, you know, do something about it, right? And so one of the things that McSilver called for was the need for an emergency task force to address this issue of suicide and treatment disparities among black youth. That was in December, January. Her office contacted us and said, we want to move on that. And so um, she worked with the Congressional Black Caucus and members of the caucus identified that they wanted to be a part of the task force. So there are like 11 members, including her as 12, that you know really want to do something about it. So last week in D.C., we launched 
the task force with the press conference and some declarative statements about the need and what will happen. According to congressional rules, and I learned this, that when you convene a task force, it can only include members of Congress, but there's a working group that works alongside it that will basically convene and develop a report of recommendations that the task force uh, hopefully can move through legislation. And that's your role, and you're planning, I know, to go to a number of these members' districts to, yes. to really work out what's happening in each one. Is it strange at all? It seems like it might be to me that this is only members of the Congressional Black Caucus who've been, been involved and are on the task force at this point. It seems like that this should be a uh, broader concern. It should be a, a broader concern. And I think that's where, you know, give my spiritual, religious kind of uh, expressions here, but, you know, the Messiah or, uh, you know, the the kind of, you know, sort of concern that the congresswoman has is just really powerful because, as as I've said in other places, if suicide was a black phenomena, particularly in this age group of black boys were killing themselves at higher rates, and then all of a sudden there was this, you know, analysis done and it showed that white kids were killing themselves at higher rates. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Ostensibly. Right? That there would be a knock down, like stop what you're doing moment, and there would be all kinds of resources and attention being Paging opioid this. crisis. Yeah, yeah. Paging, <laughs> Paging opioid. heroin. Absolutely. Heroin. There would be like, let's do something about this now. Um, you know, I'm surprised, quite frankly, that not enough black folks have emerged to really talk about this issue, those who are in positions of influence, right? Well, to be fair, Obama's yeah. task force is very concerned about, you know, the sagginess of your pants and whether or not you're <laughs> too busy dating girls who are twerking. So oh, that's, God. you know, my brother's keeper. That seems to be their primary concern. Yeah, yeah I said it. Yeah. <laughs> we are rolling. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that could be an element since he has a captive audience of chastising 400 black boys in one room at a time. Maybe he might want to talk to Was them Was that about at Morehouse, by the way? It wasn't at Morehouse, okay. but afterwards... Some of the boys were essentially very confused as to why they were being chastised because they are essentially the creme de la creme of right. their various schools. And right. they are the leaders, right? They're future Morehouse men. I, I heard not. something like that happened at Morehouse, too. Well, no, no. He went to the Morehouse graduation, remember, when all those yeah. grandmas were out there in the ring? Yeah, 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 and he yeah. sat there and, you know, talked about Pookie and stop eating your fried chicken and take care of your kids. It's like, hey— Work out your issues with your dad on your own time. Do not do that at a Morehouse graduation. We have the largest number of black men graduating in one year. I heard that happened, but I wasn't really sure. Well, I think sometimes Obama's image of who he thinks black people are is something that he's read in a magazine or seen on a movie, um, and it's not always reality. I mean, who has a cousin named Pookie? I've never met anyone who does, but... (laughs) <laughs> Back on track, I want to know. I mean, and, but just a little shout out when when thinking about Congresswoman um, Bonnie Watson Coleman and thinking about many of the members of the CBC. You see how I pivoted. I came back, Harry. Don't worry. Yeah. I always come back. Um, I just want to give a shout out to the importance of state legislatures because she served almost two decades in the New Jersey State Assembly. Um, she's the first black female 
member of Congress um, in the state of New Jersey, and so many members of the CBC spend time in their state houses are now in a position to move this agenda forward in Congress um, and hopefully larger legislation. Um, and so I just wanted to, to put that out there and sort of help some of our listeners understand the importance of some of our members of state house representation. And and you you provided me a cue, right? Okay. So I'm going to take that ball and run with it. Um, <laughs> you, you left the Obama shade ball, but you're going to take this ball. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> yes, because I am just thrilled and excited that this is not just happening on the federal level, mm-hmm. right? So Senator David Carlucci mm-hmm. here in New York State has picked this issue up with us, right? And already through the uh, the state Senate, there has been a bill passed to create a task force to examine this issue for black youth. Mm. Also, on the assembly side, Assemblywoman Kimberly Jean-Pierre is sponsoring the assembly version of the bill to create a task force here in New York. So I'm excited that we are impacting our community. We're hearing stories coming to us at McSilver because, you know, we're doing this work about kids who in New York City are experiencing suicide ideation to the point of attempting suicide or uh, really struggling with issues of depression and, and not necessarily getting connected to the appropriate treatment. And so we're excited about being able to do this work on a state level. Well, this is the first time with all, uh, I believe, with uh, on FAQ with all doctors except me. <laughs> Doctor, thank you. Um, I hope that uh, people who are listening also check out uh, McSilver's own um, podcast, um, uh, Changing the Narrative about black boys and men. And listen, I, I hope if this interests you, I, I've seen pictures and read about these kids and just, just looking at this, these children suffering with whatever inside and going through this it's uh it's powerful and it's just hard for me to see how if if everyone doesn't feel like this this could be their kids and something is going on with these numbers going up right the 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 this is an issue more people should be speaking up about and it just blows me away that you have these two studies but it seems like this was happening for literally a decade before it was even noticed right no that's true And in fact, just real quick, we have done some of our own research here looking at CDC data here at the McSilver Institute among high school age youth, right? And we find that over about a 20-year period, we're seeing suicide attempts go up for black kids, black adolescents, while all other racial groups are going down. Mm. Is that corresponding with, with suicides in this case or not not so far as you're, you're seeing this? Well, we don't know if it has uh, one limitation is that we don't know if it's leading to completed suicide. But there's an attempt. And black boys, adolescent boys, had an increase in injury by attempt. They were the only group that had a, a statistical significant increase in injury by attempt, suggesting that they may be engaging in more serious behaviors that could take their lives. 
thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Um, thank I wish you. Luck with the task force. I hope uh, we'll, we'll talk again when you've done this research and maybe even have some sense of answers or, or where there are more questions to be asked. Right. Right. And thank you also for the scholarship and the work that you're doing. Yes. In addition to housing us yes. so we can talk to not just people like you, but so many other New Yorkers who are doing really important work uh, in a holistic way. So I'm a huge fan and you, you all do amazing, amazing work. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. Dr. Lindsay, everyone. (laughs) Insert applause. F-A-Q. Lawmakers and advocates call for an investigation into NYPD's Vice Squad. Vice Squad. I'm Alex Brooklyn, and I went up to Albany on Tuesday for Lobby Day. I went as a follow-up to our episode with State Senator Jessica Ramos about her push to decriminalize sex work. Lobby Day. Lobby Day. So Lobby Day in Albany is super interesting. You have all these special interest groups. 99% of them have printed T-shirts that have the slogan of whatever thing they are advocating for. All these little groups are kind of like busy being around the Capitol building and trying to get meetings with lawmakers up and through the elevators and through all the hallways. You have these very strange, like, pairing sightings and crossings. Personally, I was up there following around a bunch of advocates from Decrim New York, which is trying to decriminalize sex work. Some of the people I was following were sex workers. And we're crammed in an elevator at one point with two ancient dudes who both have, like, not right-to-life pins, um, but like right to life patches that presumably somebody had to iron on. Also in the elevator are two Black Lives Matter activists that are there for criminal justice reform. And then behind everyone, kind of all huddled in a corner are three, I think it's like NYSAR, someone like that, like real estate lobbies. Um, They're in kind of like rumpled, mid-range level suits and we are getting more and more squeezed and packed into this little elevator. Diverse sardines stuffed into very slow-moving elevators. Anyway, that's just an illustration of kind of the oddness of Lobby Day in Albany. So the decrim people were there to repeal uh, loitering for the purposes of prostitution law and to clear the records, the police records of human trafficking victims who have convictions for crimes that they were coerced into doing. There's an impassioned press conference. There's testimony from lawmakers and sex workers and undocumented LGBTQ youth who feel that they've been uh, unfairly targeted. But an interesting thing's happened. More and more people are talking to me on and off the record, by the way, about how the NYPD vice squad is really just like a horrible organization that does more harm than good. Uh, Do you think at this point... um, Sex workers are more afraid of the police than they are of traffickers. You want to know something really sad? Sometimes the police are the traffickers. There was a letter crafted before Lobby Day 
and this letter calls for the straight-up investigation of the Vice Squad by the DOI. It's signed by Jessica Ramos, Dan Court, Ron Kim, and Richie Torres. So during this press conference, Dan Court is, you know, talking about over-policing and how decriminalizing sex work is pretty much the only way to go. That the power of law enforcement, that five sessions of basic indifference is going to help sex workers, that's not legitimate, that's not realistic. Only decriminalization is going to work to bring us out of the shadows, to bring our community out of the shadows into fairness, into justice, into no longer being the subject of economic extortion or violence. And while we work on these bills in Albany, similarly back home, I was proud to write a letter with many of my colleagues to the Department of Investigations asking that they investigate the NYPD. And Jessica Ramos kind of yells out behind him. NYPD Vice Squad accountable. Defund the Vice Squad. Defund the Vice Squad. And she gets like a pretty good call and response from that. This is not the first time, obviously, we've heard a call a pretty serious call for investigating NYPD's vice squad. In October, the Legal Aid Society called for such an investigation in an op-ed in AM New York. They were citing three things that had happened that made them want a full-on investigation into the vice squad practices. They pretty much paint a picture in this op-ed of Serpico-style corruption. 120,000 split four ways. That's serious money. And with that, you don't fuck around. I got the message. Good. Now get the fuck out. The three things they talk about in this op-ed calling for an investigation, now remember, this is back in October, is one, Vice Detective Ludwig Paz being charged with running a prostitution and gambling ring after he's retired off of Vice. They cite... In June, another vice officer facing disciplinary hearings after allegedly having sex with women who he then arrested on prostitution charges. And the last thing they cite is in November of 2017, a sex worker having died, this is Yang Sung, while attempting to flee a raid by the vice squad. The Queen's district attorney's report on her death offered no critical introspection on the impact of vice operations and labeled her a criminal who, quote, engaged in a degrading and humiliating profession, end quote. During the press conference on Tuesday in Albany and afterwards, both lawmakers and advocates referred to the fact that Yang Sung had been apparently stalked by and raped by a vice officer. Ron, Ron Kim. And, and I made a promise to the family of Yang Song that I will not stop until there's justice and there is truth. And I will continue to do so. Thank you. Dan Court. It comes from two places. One, I, I was involved with Assemblymember Kim with the family of Yang Song in, in Flushing. So uh, a lot of information didn't become public, but there was a long history of interaction between the Vice Squad and Yang Sung, and um, uh, none of it is, from my view, defensible. We made a promise to Yang Sung's family, and we have to keep going forward until we win. So, my name is Kate Fenn, and I'm an organizer with Red Canary Song, which advocates for the labor rights of immigrant massage parlor workers in Flushing, Queens. 
I'm also a second generation sex worker, born in Shanghai, who grew up in New York City public housing. Many sex workers fall prey to people who steal from us and commit violence against us because our criminal status makes it hard for us to pursue justice. Our fear of being criminalized is an impediment to getting justice against our traffickers and other people who steal from us or harm us, including the police. In these past six months, as an organizer for Red Canary, we have seen a rise in police targeting of Chinese massage parlors in Flushing, Queens, with the false idea that everyone in these parlors had been trafficked. The arrests by vice, which are conducted supposedly to rescue victims of trafficking, have resulted instead in traumatic violence against sex workers, including the death of Yang Song in 2017, a worker on 40th Road Flushing who had been harassed and sexually assaulted by a vice cop for six months prior to the police raid that resulted in her death. So what's your name? Indigo. And uh, why did you decide to come out today? Because um, I think it's important that um, people aren't criminalized for um, being forced to do sex work and that, you know, overall it's everyone's option and your choice to do, you know, what you want to do with your body. That's just my personal opinion about it. And Do you think the police are there? Do you ever get the feeling the police are there to protect you? No. Unfortunately. Are you afraid of the police? Yes. What specifically are you afraid of? Um, not just with sex work, just period. Um, just me being a black male sometimes, gay or not, you know, sometimes I, I, they just make me afraid just seeing them at times. And, you know, besides the way that they treat you and talk to you and, you know, just mistakenly kill you, it's just so, so much with them. I do believe there are some out there that are good, but overall, for the most part, they just their presence alone scares me. FAQ. Okay, so Ms. Williams, um, we just want to say welcome to FAQ NYC podcast. We've had your son, the public advocate, Jumani Williams, on the podcast a few times now. Um, and we want to wish you a, a happy early Mother's Day. Thank you very much. We consider you in many ways a, a candidate to be one of the, the first moms of New York City. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's that's more than I think, though. (laughs) Well, we just wanted to know, um, on this kind of Mother's Day quick episode, uh, Mm -hmm. what was it like, you know, raising uh, children in Brooklyn in the 70s and 80s? And and what uh, message do you want to give other moms out there who are raising uh, their kids in the city today? I think, first of all... um it was difficult because in some ways for uh, after they were like uh, eight years, when Jumani was eight years old, his dad and I divorced, but he was still always a part of their lives. But since I he moved to North Carolina, I was here, then the brunt of the uh, raising them was on, was on me. And that's not, it wasn't a problem because I could always call him if I needed help. Um, it was difficult because I wanted to make sure that they got the best of what New York had to offer and always kept them very busy um, so that they didn't get into too much trouble, (laughs) Uh, which um, all children do. I did, I guess, when I was their age. So I always told them anything they they wanted to do, I probably did already. Right. Um, (laughs) So I always kept in touch with teachers, both for him and for my daughter. I have a daughter, and um, but because he was seen as a problem child because of his Tourette's, 
until he got diagnosed, that was a little bit of a problem. Um, it opened our eyes once I realized what the problem was and I was able to talk to the teachers and get information to teachers, it became a little easier. Did you have to have at any point just the talk with him about uh, comporting himself and like the, the, the dangers in the city and being misunderstood in part because of the Tourette's? Because of the Tourette's and because he was a young black man as well. Right. Um, I remember buying a book. There was a nurse who had written a book called The Little Black Book. And I had gotten the book for him. Um, in addition to other books, I, he read a lot of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Um, we always, on Sundays, no matter what you were doing, we had to stop at one o'clock to look at Gil Noble. That was always part of the deal. No matter what you were doing, we would look at Gil Noble. So he had a sense of who he was, where he came from, and what was expected of him. And was there any point as he was growing up where, where you were worried about him and, uh, you know, if he was going to fulfill those expectations? I know my parents. Yes. I love you, Mom. Yes, always, <laughs> always. Because like a lot of other kids, he did get into some trouble, not, uh, not big trouble, but I think uh, um, peer pressure is a lot, but I always told my friends, you, you can't be friends with your children. I was never his friend. I was his mother, and they never had privacy. I don't think young people should have privacy. Um, he had had stuff stolen from him, and I always wondered, if you see somebody come home, he had his bicycle stolen. If somebody comes home with a bicycle and you didn't buy it, then you know, you and your a family member didn't buy it. You should know where it came from. Mm -hmm. So I always looked at their book bags, found out knew who their friends were, and that helped a bit. Um, helped a lot, I think. And he always talks about his teacher, Miss Ned. Miss Ned was an amazing teacher, and I think, um, in addition to Miss Ned, his godparents. There was a whole village. Um, that looked out. Right. So on a scale of one to 10, this Mother's Day, you are mm -hmm. now the mother of the public advocate of New York City. On a scale of one to 10, what's your pride level this Mother's Day? Nine. There's always room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nine. And do you still, do you still worry about him? Probably more so than before, especially in this political climate, probably more so now than and, when he first ran and won. And what kind of worrying is it? Is it a, a fear for his safety? Is it a fear for uh, sort of the nastiness of politics? What's the root of the worry? The nastiness of politics. Mm -hmm. The nastiness. Because you're caught between a rock and a hard place sometimes. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And it's very hard, I guess, trying to please a lot of people. When I got married, my father took my then fiance aside and said, you already live together. Where are the grandkids? <laughs> I just wonder if you have any message to your son you would like to deliver on our radio show about, uh, about grandchildren? I, I want some as soon as possible. <laughs> 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 Although... Uh, I have a step-granddaughter. His girlfriend has a beautiful little girl, and she is now part of our lives as well. Oh, 
Well, um, and so what's on deck for you in the upcoming months? Are you working on anything? I You said you just got back from home country. Um, yes. Do you have any exciting plans for the summer as the first mom of New York City? Um, I'm going with uh, one of his classmates is from Latvia. So I'm going with her in July to Latvia. Oh, and my. Then usually I make use of everything that's available in New York City, the concerts in the park, um, smorgasbord on Sundays. I I love New York. The museum, first nights at the museum, I try to do as much of those as possible. Well, it is apparent that New York loves you back. Um, you have such an interesting story. I implore our, our listeners to uh Google the Tenement Museum. I was in a conversation with yeah. Ms. Pat Williams and then City Councilman Jumani Williams a few years ago. If you just go on YouTube, you can find our conversation. Um, you have such an interesting story about immigration and raising first-generation children in New York City at a particular time uh, and being a black woman and of a certain age and, and really highlighting you know, what your life was like. I'd really implore our listeners to, to check that out. Uh, now that you mentioned that, I think starting tomorrow, I think it starts tomorrow at the graduate uh, CUNY's Graduate Center. Mm-hmm. I was always I was also part of a program that um, Brooklyn College did on immigration in New York, and oh. I think there it's going around the city and it opens tomorrow at the Graduate Center. Lots of people immigrants. They've highlighted, and they're great stories. I I think if you look around, you'll see some amazing stories of people who've come here and have made use of the uh, what's available, you know, the opportunities that were available here. So that's something that I think you may want to look at as well. Oh, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. And th- thank you so much. And just a last question: as uh, as an immigrant who raised two kids here. Is there anything that you wish you'd known at the time that you know now that you might want to share with uh, with, with younger moms who are uh, who are in the middle of it uh, right now in this city? I really, I think each case is individual. Each person's experiences are different. Um, again, I say be aware of your surroundings, who your children associate with, expose them to what's available within New York City because there is a lot that's available and don't be so much a friend and make sure that they don't follow as much as some of the young people do. I think you have to you have to have a hold in your household before you can expect the school to do something. You have to become part of the entire experience. Now now that your children are grown up, can you be friends or does that still hold? Oh no, we're friends now, but that don't mean that I'm not still his mother. I think he, I still demand that respect. His being public advocate doesn't negate that I could tell him what I think he's doing wrong. <laughs> well, we know that. Uh, <laughs> then Councilman Williams always told us. He said, "Listen, uh, if if." If I do something that my mother disapproves of, she threatens to run against me, and I know she yeah. could beat <laughs> she could beat me at the polls. Unfortunately, I couldn't as city council because I don't live in his district. Oh, okay. Uh, dur- during the last um, census, they removed 
my area from his district. So I'm like three blocks, four blocks outside his district. Okay, that's the only thing that saved him, huh? That's the only thing that saved him. (laughs) Well, Miss Williams, we just appreciate you so much. Um, Is there anything that we should check out? What's your favorite place in Brooklyn that we should check out this summer? Um, Oh, my gosh. There's so much. I love Williamsburg. Okay. I love Dumbo. I like to go on Sundays to Smorgasbord. I like to go on Saturdays to First Saturdays at Brooklyn Museum. So... And then the summer concerts that the borough presidents, the borough president does. I like that. So there's a lot of stuff. I try to stay active um, and just whatever is, is available. Any concerts at Prospect Park. I, I come into Manhattan to do the concerts at, at, at the Central Park. And um, there's a lot if you look for it, a whole lot of which are also free. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, we won't keep you. We just um, want to thank you for joining us at FAQ NYC and have a wonderful Mother's Day. Do you have any special I, plans? Uh, yes. Um, my whole family, um, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's mom, we're going to a luncheon. Oh, lovely. Yes. Lovely. Enjoy. Uh, have a wonderful Sunday and thank you so much. Thank you very much, and happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Are you a mom, Christina? Oh, no, I'm child-free. Okay. (laughs) No, you're not. You probably have a lot of children that you take care of. I do. I'm a a teacher, uh, so I consider all of them my children, but I have chosen to be (laughs) child-free. Okay. No, you're not. Okay. You help help other children, so that counts, too. Have a a wonderful day. Okay, you too, Ms. Williams. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Good speaking to you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. We operate off of a grant given to us by Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the economics of journalism. This episode is brought to you by me, executive producer Alex Brooklyn, and of course, our other producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, Adam Kamara. Special thanks to Michael Lindsay and Patricia Williams. Okay, well, that's, that's not making the cut either. Why? You can't decide that. I get to decide that.